0: Heavenly Father, we put all this before you today, our worship, our prayer, our study, and along with it, Father, our concerns, our needs, and our requests. Father, we ask that you would consider our hearts, each of us where we are, though we're separate, we're gathered in your name, and we know, Father, you hear us. So in our prayer this morning, as I pray on behalf of the body assembled, Father, bring our current circumstances to a rapid end, to the better outcomes that we hope, to the purpose that we long for, an opportunity, Father, to return to our gathering, return to our service to you in various walks of life, and to uh, experience a time of peace and rest. Father, we know that there are good purposes in all that's happening, though we don't always see them. But we also know, Father, that seasons come and seasons go, and we ask for a new season. Even as we do this, though, Father, we look beyond all of these circumstances to what you've promised will come one day in a new kingdom, a new age, and that, Father, is our true desire. So while we request for things today, and we intercede on behalf of those around us who have needs today, while we… While we wish for better things today, Father, we also know that today is not what we live for. We live for the future where we will never die again. And Lord, I pray that you would keep our minds on that even as we may be distracted by the world around us. Help us, Father, to see with eyes for eternity to live for the glory of your name. And that alone, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you were with us last week as we opened up in chapter 24. I say that because uh, it was an introduction of sorts and it was one I hope would be helpful to you in getting into the rest of this chapter. But today we move on from that introduction and we return to the Olivet Discourse. I told you last week this is one of the most important teachings in all of the Gospels. It runs from chapter 24 in Matthew all the way to chapter 25. And we call it the Olivet Discourse because of the location where Jesus was when he delivered this teaching. He was on the Mount of Olives. He had just exited the temple for the last time, a free man, and this is the Tuesday of the week he dies. And he is accompanied by his disciples. They've walked out of the temple through the east gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the other side, onto the Mount of Olives, on their way to Bethany, which is where they spend their evenings during this week. And as they walk out, you remember, they uh, gawk at the building and they ask Jesus to look at it with them, and Jesus responds in that provocative way, saying that this temple would one day be torn down. And naturally, that led the disciples to begin asking Jesus questions about the event that he just alluded to and about the circumstances that would surround it, particularly coming, the end of the age coming and the beginning of the kingdom age dawning. And as we opened last week, we read three questions that the disciples posed to Jesus in that conversation. It was in verse three that we get those three questions from Matthew. Let's start there. Now, today we're going to run this study a little differently, as I said, it's going to be a little bit more visual, because there is a lot to understand in this chapter, and it'll be this way for several weeks. So we do have uh, visual aids. You'll be looking at those as I teach, and of course, all of this material you can download from the website later. But let's start with verse three of Matthew. Matthew 24, verse three, Jesus says, "'As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, "'the disciples came to him privately, saying, "'Tell us, when will these things happen, "'and what will be the sign of your coming "'and of the end of the age?' So the disciples asked three questions. Let me just underline them for you in the text. The first one is, uh, when will these things happen? That's in reference to the temple being destroyed. And then secondly, what will be the sign of your coming? Meaning, when will you enter into your reign as king in the kingdom? That is, coming into your kingdom is a term that they're using there. And then the third question is, what will be signs of the end of the age? We'll cover why they asked these in a moment, but let's just move on. We have those three questions, and then if I take you over to Luke, last week we looked at Luke 21.7, and in Luke 21.7 we found a fourth question that Luke recorded uh, that Matthew did not record. So in Luke 21.7 we read, they question him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So there's a bit of a fourth question there, or you could say part two to one of the three questions, because in Luke's Gospel, we find out the disciples also wanted to know what signs would accompany the destruction of the temple. That's kind of a part two to question number one. Let's put them all together. So the apostles' questions were, first, what will we, uh, when will these things take place, referring to the temple's destruction. Matthew then jumps to what are the signs of the Lord coming into his kingdom. Then he goes to what are the signs of the end of the age. And then we go back up to question one in Luke, and Luke adds that extra one, what will be the signs when the temple will be destroyed? Now last week I told you there are a couple of interesting aspects to the Olivet Discourse that you need to understand if you're gonna interpret it correctly. The first of those aspects, or quirks, is that Jesus adds an additional question to the four that he received. And he did so because there was something there that they didn't think to ask about that he knows they will need to understand. And the fourth question that Jesus inserted was what will not be signs of the end of the age. And we'll learn more about why he added that one when we get there. And then the second quirk, the second little detail here that you have to understand if you're going to interpret the passage correctly is that as Jesus goes into the answers to these questions, these now five questions altogether, when he starts to answer them, he doesn't do it in the order that they came at him. He doesn't use their order. He changes the order of the answers because he has a purpose in that, and this is the new order. So he begins with his own question, the one that he introduced, what are not signs, of the end of the age. And then he moves through the others that they presented to him in his own preferred order. And I told you last week that we know this, that the fact that there are these quirks, we know this from the context of what he says. So as we go into the answers, I'll show you as we move through them why we know which ones are coming next in the order that Jesus does. And it'll take us a couple of different questions to get through before you'll see that, but you'll see it when we get there but I'd rather get right back into the text. So let's do that now. And we're gonna do that by first going to the one that Jesus introduced that is not one of the four they asked. And it begins in Matthew 24, verse four. Jesus says, And Jesus answered them and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, But that's not yet the end. For a moment, let's go jump to Luke's version. I just wanna show you what Luke says on this same passage. It's very similar. Luke records it this way. And he said, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying I am he, and the time is near, do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. I'm sure many of us on this particular Sunday can identify with what Jesus says in Luke 21, nine. That is, you'll hear of disturbances. And certainly we're hearing of disturbances. But he says, don't be scared of that. It has nothing to do with the end. If anything, it's just indicative of the present. And his first warning to the church, going back to the text, is that we should not be misled into believing that Jesus has come back and we're surprised, or that we haven't known about it, or they didn't show us that he was here, and that he's running around on the earth somewhere, and we were completely oblivious to it. It's just one of the constants of this age that people are always guessing the end, or trying to guess the end wrongly. They're always saying, the end is here, and then there's the other crowd that says, no, nothing's ever going to end. And these are two perspectives, both uninformed in their own way, and they are simply characteristic of the ignorance of humanity when it comes to the things God has revealed in his word. The, the world generally assumes that, or the Christian world, if you will, or the religious world, let's put it that way, the religious world generally assumes that even the most minor thing going on in the world must be a sign of the end. I can't tell you how many times we get questions to our ministry from people who have been watching what goes on in the Middle East, and some small political thing will happen between Israel and the Palestinians or whomever, and the questions come flooding in. Is this a sign of the end? Friends, those things are not important. They're not signs, generally speaking. Uh, What's really ironic, though, is when the big things do start happening, the things that Jesus actually tells us to look for, when those things start happening, the world will be oblivious to those. It's the irony of prophecy. They make the small things into big things and they miss the big things when they show up. That's what Jesus is teaching us in this chapter. And he says, one of the key things you will see happening throughout history, which will be false and therefore should be ignored, are people who would come saying they are the Messiah, that they are even Jesus himself. And we're told that when that happens, don't believe them. They are always from the enemy. They are always from Satan. They come to deceive the world And we can be sure their claims are always wrong. And you might ask, well, how can we be sure that everyone who says that they are the returned Christ is wrong? Because what happens when the actual Jesus does return? We would be saying he was not real either, right? How do we know when the real one comes versus the false ones? And the answer, friends, from Scripture is that when Jesus comes back, you won't be able to miss him because the Bible says you will be with him. The Christian will have already been taken home by that point, and so when Jesus returns at his second coming, he doesn't come alone, he comes with the army of the church and angels, we're told in Revelation 19. So the point is, you cannot miss Jesus' second coming because you will not be here at that moment. And as, that, as a result, you can safely ignore anyone who would come along pretending to be him. And Jesus says many of these counterfeits will actually succeed in deceiving Some group within the world, many will fall for their claims and you've seen this in the past. I know you've seen those crazy men who come at one place or another, one form or another claiming to be Messiah and you wonder about those that follow them. Why did they think that person might actually be Christ? Well, it's because the enemy has real power. Have you ever wondered why it is that you don't see people parading around the world saying, I am the return of Confucius or I am the return of Mohammed? or I am the return of Buddha, why is it that they only ever pretend to be the return of Christ? The answer, friends, is because Satan knows who the real God is, so he doesn't waste time counterfeiting false ones. He only counterfeits the real one. Another evidence to you that there is really only one God in this world, and even the enemy knows that. Now, the second sign Jesus said we should not be worried about are wars or rumors of wars. Now, in our world, War is a constant, and rumors of wars are just as common. And Jesus said, that in itself means nothing. When you hear about violence in the Middle East, or for that matter, in the United States, world powers threatening each other with nuclear war, or trade wars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Friends, it's meaningless. It's just the by and by of living in a sinful world. And so it's not a sign of the end. But Jesus said, there will be signs of the end. Even though the ones we just discussed are not signs of the end, that does not mean there will be no signs. It means you need to know the difference. And he says, those signs take certain forms. And he begins to explain in the third answer, if you notice in the list of questions now, he's jumping from what are not signs to what are signs. This is one of the ways we know contextually that he begins to talk about question number three. Because if you look at the questions, we know that the things he's about to describe did not accompany the destruction of the temple. That's question one and 1A. So what he's about to describe has nothing to do with the temple's destruction. We also then have two left. We have question three and question two. So what we're about to study is one of, the, of those two possibilities. And when you look at what he starts with, what are not signs of the end of the age, and then he goes into what are signs of the end of the age, you'll start to see the pattern that tells us he's talking about question number three. Later in the discourse, when he gets to question number two, at the very end of the discourse, it'll become abundantly clear at that point that this ordering I'm giving you is correct. For now, though, let's go to the next question, which are what are gonna be signs to tell us that we are at the end of the age. And in order to understand the answer that he gives to this question, I first have to talk to you about what an age is. For after all, if we're gonna look at signs of the end of an age, you need to know what is an age. And simply put, an age in the Bible is a period of history that is long but finite. It is not an infinite period of time. God establishes ages in the timeline of history for his own purposes, to accomplish something that he has intended. And those ages have a beginning point, and those ages have an ending point. And when one age ends, a new age begins immediately thereafter. So you can think of ages as a way that God blocks off periods of history, and each block has a purpose, or something that makes it distinct from other ages. Our current age, according to the book of Daniel, began in 605 B.C., when Babylon attacked Jerusalem and the nation of Israel lost its security in the land and was sent into exile as a penalty for their idolatry. And the prophet Daniel says that this age, beginning in 605 BC, will go through four stages of world-dominating powers running the place, running the world. Each of these Gentile empires will subjugate Israel and subjugate much of the world. And throughout the period of this age, Daniel says, that the nation of Israel will never again be able to dwell securely in its land, always being subjected to some kind of Gentile oppression. Jesus called this period of history that began in 605 B.C., this present age that we live in, he called it the age of the Gentiles in Luke 21. And Daniel says it has an end, but that end is at Jesus' second coming. That is, the end of this age will lead into the age of the kingdom. And the event that propels us out of this age and into the next age when the kingdom on earth comes is Jesus's second coming. So we live in an age that started in 605 BC and it will end when the kingdom begins. And that's what the disciples understood. You know, they had been taught from their youth about what the prophets said and they would have understood that Daniel gave these prophecies and so they know that there is a date at some point when the age of the Gentiles would end and then the kingdom would begin and that's what every Jew looked forward to. So when they hear Jesus saying that their temple would be destroyed, they think about apocalyptic things and so their mind naturally goes to this prophecy of Daniel and they ask plainly, What will tell us when we're finally going to be done with this age and the kingdom age is going to begin? So their interest was in this little piece of time, some undefined period of time at the end of our current age when signs would begin to happen on the earth and as someone who might be living in that period of history would experience those signs, they would know, oh, this is our indication that we're about to run into the kingdom age, that we're about to finish the age of of the Gentiles. I think of a little bit like going to a a play or an opera or a concert when you have an intermission and people get sent out of the auditorium for a while and then when it's time to start the play or the concert again, what do they do? Well, they often flash the lights or dim the lights to let you know, hey, it's time to get back to your seat. Well, in a sense, that's what God is going to do on earth right before the age that we currently live in comes to its end. And the next age, when Jesus sets up the kingdom, begins. At the end, the lights will flash, so to speak. But more specifically, Jesus says that those signs will come in some very particular ways. Let's look at those. Going back to the text for a moment, in Matthew 24, 7, there's something Jesus says there at the end that we're gonna focus on. Let's start with Matthew 24, 7, though. Here are the signs of what comes at the end of this age. Jesus says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's that last phrase I want to start with, the beginnings of birth pangs, Jesus said. We need to understand this phrase because Jesus said, if you understand how birth pangs work, then you're going to understand how the signs of the end of this age will manifest to us. And we'll start with some basics of what birth pangs are like. Now being a husband and a father, I am uh, intimately acquainted with birth pangs and therefore an expert in such matters for your purposes this morning. And I know that they have certain characteristics. The number one characteristic of course being that they are painful. now you might say, Steve, how would you know? Well, I have verified this data that birth pangs can be quite uncomfortable for the woman as she gives birth, obviously. If birth pangs start with painful things, then we should also expect that these painful things will be part of the signs of the end of the age. You know, The contractions that accompany birth are intense and they interrupt normal life. I mean, you cannot be a woman in labor and go about your normal day. It's impossible. And yet at the same time, that painful experience is telling you something, isn't it? It's giving you an indication that something new is about to come. And so it will be for the signs that come at the end of this age. They will be painful experiences for the world in general. And they will interrupt normal life in every imaginable way. But at the same time, they are an announcement to us that something new and better is soon to come. Secondly, they are often mild at first. And as a result, they are imperceptible for. Many women, there's times when women think they're having birth pangs and they're not and so they go to the hospital and they find out it was just false labor and then later the the actual labor begins but because it's very mild and very subtle, they're not sure if it's real or not and that's how it also will be for the signs that accompany the end of the age. They will start relatively mildly and as a result, many will not notice or recognize that what they're seeing are the signs Jesus proposed. But what happens after a while? Well, we all know this, of course. After time, birth pangs begin to increase, and they increase in a couple of ways. First, they increase in severity. That is, the contractions get stronger and stronger. The pain increases, and so on. And again, so it will be for the signs of the end of the age. They will repeat themselves. You aren't going to get just one of these signs. You're going to get repeated experiences of the same kind of signs. But with each repetition, they get worse and stronger. And then lastly, birth pangs increase in frequency. That is, in the way a woman gives labor, those contractions come sooner. That is, they get closer and closer together, more of them per minute, so to speak, or per hour. And so it will be also with the signs that accompany the end of the age. They will repeat, and as they repeat, they will come more frequently than they were in the beginning. And that is itself a sign. So it's not just the mere existence of certain things that tell us the end is near. It's the pattern in which these things present. Mild, then strong. Occasional, then frequent. Always painful, always disruptive. But there's one other characteristic to birth pangs that we don't want to overlook. And that is that they ultimately lead to the birth of new life. That's, that's where we're headed in all of this, of course. That's where you're going with the birth process. And so as the pains of the last day's signs increase and the end begins to approach, the attitude that a Christian should take in the midst of that is an understanding that these things are about to lead to something marvelous and glorious, something we've been waiting for, something that makes the pain worth it, so to speak. A new world, a new glorious world, a new Israel, a new uh, world structure, a new government, a new king, new everything. And that's the comparison that Jesus begins with. He says, that's where you need to have your head as you think about the signs that I'm telling you to watch for. And in verse seven, let's go back and look at these signs with the birth pangs framework in mind. In verse seven, he says, it starts with nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now, that's war in effect. But now, we just heard a moment ago Jesus said, don't look at wars or rumors of wars as signs. And then he says, but when you see nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom, that is a sign. Well, now we understand why he started the way he did, because we see that the kind of signs he's gonna provide to us could easily be mistaken for something that is not a sign. To say it simply, there's ordinary war, not a sign. And then there's a special kind of war, that's your sign. And what is the special war that he's talking about here when he says nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom? Well, the difference between this special war and the kind that you see all the times beyond that, the difference comes from understanding the phrase nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom in its original context from the time of Jesus. In Jesus' day, rabbis use this terminology quite frequently to describe a certain kind of war a war of uh, a type that had never been experienced before on Earth. And the term, to put it simply, refers to a level of warfare unknown before a certain time in history. We call it world war. That is, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom is not just two nations or two powers warring. It's the entire globe immersed in a common conflict. And, That had never happened. It was unprecedented in Jesus' day, never been seen. And in fact, it remained unprecedented until the 20th century. In 1914, Europe engaged in a war that eventually dragged most of the planet into the conflict, whether in the fighting or whether simply in the providing of soldiers or armament to other armies, in one way or another, through allies of one kind or another, you ended up with 88% of the world's population involved in World War I in some fashion. That was the first time in human history that a war of that scale had ever been fought. And it meets the definition of a war that is fought nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In fact, this war was so unique that you may remember that at the time, it was initially given a special name. People called it the war to end all wars. That hubris just reflected the fact that no one could have imagined that a war of that scale could ever be repeated. They felt like it was so unprecedented, it was a one-off event. Of course, they only could hold that attitude for about two decades because it wasn't long after that that we got World War II. Now, you remember World War II was larger than World War I? and comparatively worse than World War I. In fact, it had a greater percentage of the world involved in that war than in World War I. Does that remind you of anything? Birth pangs? Now we know why Jesus ruled out regular war, because he didn't want us to be upset when there's a regional conflict, thinking that, oh, the end is near. That would be incorrect. The world is always at war in one way or another somewhere on the planet, but it is not always in world war. And when the world wars of the last century kicked off, they became the earliest signs to tell us that we are now approaching the end of the age. And did you notice that in the list that we're studying now in Matthew 24, he gives a number of different signs, but the first of those was world war. And as we see from our past, the first of these signs to be fulfilled has also been world war. The next sign he gave was famines in various places. Now here again, famine is a common event on earth. So in order to understand this sign, how must I look at it? Well, this is where the birth pangs framework is so helpful. In fact, it's essential. Because not every famine that occurs is a sign of the end. But when famines begin to increase in frequency and severity, around the world, that's what he means by various places, well then we start to see a pattern and that pattern now becomes a sign. So when famines are no longer uh, limited to the poorest regions of sub-Saharan Africa, but when they start to hit various places, that is places that you never thought it could happen and coming in frequency that you never imagined you'd ever see, well then now you know you're starting to see the fulfillment of the end of the age. And when you see that in combination with world wars and so on, they all start to line up. And if you look a little bit on the web, if you do some research on your own, I certainly encourage you to do that. What you'll find is that famines have been increasing, both in frequency and in severity. And they have been happening at times and in places that you never imagined you would see it. And even just recently in our own world, as we've all Uh, experienced this calamity of of world pandemic, you've noticed that food supplies have become an issue and shortages and so on, whether it's from hoarding or from overpurchasing or just from a lack of production and so on, my point is those things aren't all by themselves signs and they aren't necessarily producing famine, of course, but it's simply an example to us of how easily these things can be triggered when God is ready to disrupt the normal. And there are indications that famine is increasing even apart from that. So as we move closer to the end of this age, you can expect this sign to get worse as well. And then next, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, and earthquakes. Earthquakes will be a sign of the end of the age. Here again, the earth has always had earthquakes, so what are we looking for? We're looking for that birth pang pattern. Now, of all the signs Jesus gives, this one's actually the easiest to measure because scientists have made quite a, an effort to track earthquakes around the world. You can go to the USGS website, U- US Geological Survey's website, and you can do your own searching there. And You can enter in queries and it'll report back data for you and you can you know, research to your heart's content. And what you find as you look there is that earthquakes have been increasing in the last century, in, in some cases in dramatic ways. The data shows there's a general rise in earthquake activity worldwide. That's been going on now for a number of decades. And in the US in particular, there have been a surprising increase in high intensity earthquakes around the US. Now I know the biggest earthquakes always get the most attention whenever they happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that apart from the really big ones, just some of the more average ones, if you will, the numbers of those have been going up as well. States like Oklahoma and Arkansas and others in the U.S. have reported just an amazing increase in unexplained earthquakes, something on an order of magnitude in their increase. These are not normal variations. They're not statistically within the realm of normal, and scientists are stumped. And if you look at this data at a much broader level worldwide, the average number of high-intensity earthquakes per decade over the last 100-plus years has gone up, 43%. 43%. So the world would look at this perhaps and say it's just within the norm. I'm sure in another 100 or 200 years it'll drop back down. That's what you'll hear sometimes. But the Bible says if you see that and you see increasing famines and you see world wars, you ought to know what the Bible says. That in other words, these things mark the end of the age. And the Lord has selected certain signs that because they also have a common variant, it's easy for the world to overlook them, not to make much of them. But if you know your Bible and your head is in the word of God, you get to know what they mean. That's how God's prophecy works. He speaks through the word to the believer in such a way that the unbelieving world is oblivious. Now there's one more sign actually We didn't see it in Matthew's gospel because he didn't record it, but I think you'll find this one of particular interest. There's one more sign that Jesus gives us of the end of the age, and that's found in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 21, verse 10, he says, and then he continued to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's your world war. And there will be great earthquakes, we saw that one, and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So Luke actually adds a couple of there. That last one on terrors and great signs from heaven, we'll cover that later. But for now, I want you to look at the one that he mentions in conjunction with famines that Matthew did not record. He says there will be plagues in various places. Now, what is a plague? Well, simply put, it's a spread of disease over a wide area, otherwise today known as an epidemic or pandemic. Jesus said, These will start to happen as we approach the end of the age, and they will get progressively worse. Birth pangs, right? So they might start like SARS or MERS, as we know the previous pandemics or epidemics, and then they'll progress, and maybe they'll become the coronavirus, and then somewhere in our future, friends, and I don't want to trouble you with this, but there will be another one, and it will be worse than this one, because this is itself a sign, a sign that the end is coming, a sign that this age is almost over, a sign that the world needs to know what's coming next. They follow a pattern of birth pangs getting worse and more frequent, and for those who know their Bible, these events are not only understandable from the standpoint that we see now what they mean, but they are also a sign that encourages us, that it tells us something that we long to know, that you realize that as these things happen, there's no going back. Okay, there's, there's no recovery. Uh, I mean, we're all sitting around right now saying, I wonder what normal will be when this is all done. When is normal coming back? Friends, when a mother goes into labor, there's no going back. There's no place in which you go back to the point before the child was coming to a life without the child. There's only one direction. You go forward into the birth, and that's what you want. Jesus is saying when you start to see these signs begin, you need to know there's no turning back, there's no stopping until the end of this age and the new age comes. This is a one-way trip to the kingdom and that's a trip you want to take. I mean, for those who read the scriptures and those who understand the events of our world today, we should be encouraged and excited even. Now the pages of the Bible are coming to life right in front of your eyes. Right now, in our world, it has been since last century. It's only going to become more and more evident, and it's all saying the same thing. The kingdom is right around the corner. We aren't wishing for death. I'm not saying we wanna see the world torn apart. We certainly don't wanna see people dying. That's not the point. We would all like to live as long as the Lord allows, and I would certainly prefer to do that in a peaceful and calm world. I get it. But friends, sooner or later, there was going to be a generation of believers who lived at the end of the age. Sooner or later, somebody was going to play that role. And that generation was going to live in turbulent times. But you know what else? They were going to be the privileged generation that got to experience things that earlier generations of believers could barely even imagine and perhaps even longed to see. We're going to see prophecies of the Bible coming true before our very eyes and the bible itself says that that experience of being wrapped up in the fulfillment of prophecy it builds faith it builds our assurance it excites us for the truth of what we've read but of course that's only true if you understand it you have to understand what you're seeing you have to understand what the bible says and you have to understand what the world is showing you in relationship to what the bible says And Jesus says the only way to enter the kingdom age is after this age ends. Someone had to be there to see it. And by all accounts, we are among the privileged generations to see these things playing out. And friends, it is exciting. Now, it is not so much fun to wake up in the morning and watch your world falling apart on the news or to not be able to find toilet paper when you need it or to not be able to go to church when you want to. I get it. No one enjoys that side of this. And if you look around this morning, our world is certainly rocking and and reeling and it's only just started. But it also means our Lord's return is right around the corner and time is short. So as the signs appear, take some encouragement in the chaos. That is, know that it means time is running out. And if you gave me an option right now to live another 10 decades or eight decades or five decades or whatever I could manage in my lifetime in the present earth or to to be taken out of it tomorrow. Do you know which one I would choose? I would choose to cut in line for the kingdom by leaving this earth tomorrow, then to hang around here another few decades and then get to the kingdom after that much more turmoil. So it's not a death wish. It's simply a wish for Jesus to move the plan along at his discretion. Remember last week I introduced this whole section of study in in the Olivet Discourse by telling you that the study of prophecy in general in the Bible. It's not divisive. It's certainly not futile, although there were some pastors, like the one I quoted last week, who would like to tell us that the things that are given to us in the Bible about the end are unknowable, and therefore, we should not bother studying them at all. In truth, it's a privilege to have access to this revealed knowledge of God, and it is a blessing to be able to experience them fulfilled in our lifetime. And if you turn a blind eye to what it says or pretend it's not there so that you don't have to be bothered with it, you're neglecting the blessing that God has given you in the word of God. And if you should suggest that you're supposed to ignore it because it it will only confuse you or uh, distract you, well, that's close to blasphemy because the Bible is not given to us for any reason except that we would learn it and know it. Our God is not a God of confusion. He gave us the word so that we would be blessed with the knowledge of what is coming and be prepared for it. And in that knowledge, we would serve him better. And in fact, the Bible itself encourages us to do that, evidenced by the very fact that 40% of it is prophecy. And a proper study of it brings us closer together in unity and prepares our hearts for what is coming so that we are not deceived. But now, from what you've learned this morning, there's a second reason you can see developing here for why we study what we're studying right now, why we needed to learn about these things, why we needed to know that as we approach the end, we're going to see four basic categories of signs materializing in front of us. Why? Because it's how we find hope in the midst of these circumstances. Paul says in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica about certain things coming in the church. He tells them principally about the Lord coming for the church, and then he talks about the time of tribulation, and he talks about the Lord's second coming. And as he's laying all of this out for the church in Thessalonica, there's an interesting moment in the middle of it, just one verse, and I think that's the verse you need to listen to this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter four, he's gone through a good part of this eschatology, we call it, study of end times. He's gone through a good part of it already, He's got a bunch more to tell, and he's walking the church through it, and then he pauses at one little moment in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, and he says this. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what he says. Comfort one another. I want you to think about that statement for just a moment. Paul says, and remember, he's talking about the same things I'm talking about out of Matthew 24. He's talking about the last days. And Paul says, comfort one another with the words that he offered to that church concerning the the events of those last days. What he's saying is this, in in in-depth understanding of the events that surround the end of this age and the Lord's return and so on, those things are a comfort to the believer who understands them. They are not divisive, they are not troubling, they're not confusing, they're not frustrating, they're not anything other than comforting. Look, if the study of prophecy scares you, friends, you're not doing it right, because that's not its purpose. The Lord says he gave it to us as a comfort. And what's more, Paul says, we don't just read it for our own comfort. We're supposed to comfort one another with these things, with this teaching. So we're supposed to share what we know about the end times events, about what these signs are, about what they mean, so that other believers would be comforted about them as well and the Lord promises that it would be a comfort. So that when you turn to a believer in this day, for example, and you tell them that, you know, I think the coronavirus follows a pattern, a pattern that indicates we're at the last days here. In other words, this whole thing that we're struggling with right now is a labor pain, which means there's a birth coming, which means there's new life right around the corner. If you can bring that to one of God's children out of the word of God, you're taking them from a state of panic and worry and fear, and a desire to restore things to a normal that never wanted to be normal in the first place, you're taking them from that mindset to a mindset that looks forward and says, well, I guess if these things have to happen, then it means good things are right around the corner. I can look forward to those things. I can put up with the now, knowing what's coming next. So that's how these things comfort us. They tell you that the chaos that you're seeing around you right now is not random, it is not out of control, and most importantly, it is not a problem that needs to be fixed. Earthquakes, famines, and pandemics are not a problem. They are signs from God that the real solution is about to come. Look, if there's only one solution that fixes the things that make this world such a hard place to accept, then we want that solution sooner than later. Are you upset that there's injustice in the world this morning? Well, then you're right. Do you believe that hate and lawlessness is running rampant in the world and needs a solution? You are right. Are you mourning the tragedy of disease, of hunger, of violence, of natural disasters when they come? Do you wish all of that would end? Well, you're right. And you know what? There's only one solution for all of those things. It's Jesus present on the earth, ruling in his kingdom. You ain't gonna get justice before that. You're not gonna get rid of sin Before that, you're not gonna stop death before that. Wars and all the rest keep going until that. Do you want those things solved? Then you want Jesus back, and you want the kingdom on earth. And you cannot get the kingdom on earth in your own power by trying to fix something that's broken and irreparable. You get it by the Lord doing his work in producing something new. And the signs that we're all experiencing right now, which have affected us all, are signs that tell us that God is ready, finally, to bring that solution. And hallelujah, and how long has the church been waiting, and how glorious is it that we have the privilege to be those counted among the privileged to see it transpire in our own eyes, in our own day. So when you study the Bible, you realize that these events that rock the world are part of what God is doing to announce his return, and I think of it in a very simple way. It's like when you go into your final exams before you graduate in your senior year from high school or college. If you've ever gone through that experience, as I'm sure most of us have, then you know how that feels, right? Those final exams on that last year, it's hard usually, usually not a lot of fun. You have to work hard to get through it. But you know, at the same time as you're studying and you're trying to get ready for those last exams, there's a part of you that's pretty excited about the whole process, isn't it? Why? Because you know graduation's right around the corner. That is, you know that this is the last step to get to what you've always wanted, the whole reason you went through the effort in the first place. Well, friends, the signs of the end of the age that are already upon us and are getting worse tell you Jesus is right around the corner and that you're among the privileged to see those things, and if you endure just a little longer, you'll be glad for what comes next. So as Paul said, comfort one another with these words, don't get wrapped up in the politics or the culture wars or the, 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 the angst and the fear of the society around you. Put all that aside. Let that go, because it's gonna go. What you should be thinking about instead is where Jesus is gonna bring something new and better soon and that you're a part of that future by faith alone. And because that's coming soon, as the signs are telling us, we don't have to worry about what's going on around us. God will take care of that. Now, as I finished this morning and as you think about these things this morning, there is a group maybe listening, part of our congregation, distributed as it is right now, whether that's in the live stream or maybe I'm watching the recording later. I know that within that larger audience, there may be some who have come into this moment and are thinking to themselves, well, I, I don't know if I'm a part of this future with Jesus or not. That in fact, you may be fearful because this world is all you know. Let me encourage those of you if there are any who are listening, to think about your current situation this way. You were born into this world like we all were. You share in what this world has, sin, violence, hatred, fear, trepidation. It's the natural human state. But it doesn't have to be your permanent state, nor does it have to be your future. The Bible says that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. Rather than being born the way we were the first time, out of a person's body and into a sinful world, we get born a second time spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit inside us, making us like Jesus, a child of God. And by faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, who paid for the price of sin by dying on a cross, we are granted that new birth, the Bible says. It's just that simple. By faith in Jesus, you can become a new person, a new spiritual creature, and that new person has a new future. The Bible says we will be like Jesus, not just in the sense that we become associated with him, but in the sense that our very spirit becomes like his spirit. And as such, we deserve the same thing he deserves. We receive the same thing he receives. He was resurrected, we will be resurrected. He lives in glory, we will live in glory. He will rule a kingdom, and we will rule with him in that kingdom. That is the future the Bible offers to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. So if what you've heard today has triggered in you a desire for those better things, well friends, they're right in front of you. Just confess Jesus. That is, that if you confess with your mouth he is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, the Bible says you shall be saved. So I encourage you wherever you are now to make that confession. You don't make it to a human being, you make it to God himself. In a prayer of your own choosing, But put that before the Lord, praying that he would offer you the new birth in Jesus that you desire, and he'll do that. I pray that you would do that with me here as we finish. Father, thank you, Father, for the signs that give us comfort in the midst of turmoil, lead us into a life of peace and expectation because of what we know. Help us to look past the turmoil of our days so that it does not distract us. Father, for those among us who have come to faith and are ready to confess, Father, we pray that they would have the courage to do so, and as they do, Father, meet them with your spirit, grant them new life, and lead them into a body of believers who would disciple them on a walk with Jesus. Father, we thank you for the miracle of new birth in Jesus and the privilege to be a part of that process. Bring us back, Father, in weeks to come. We still have more to study. We have so much more we wanna learn. Father, we ask for that learning in, in your timing.